0: The net effect is that you create a media environment that stacks the deck against us if we are seeking to be attentive to the world, attentive to nature.
1: Welcome to Nature Junkie Radio. This is a place for us to explore the wisdom, wonder, and ways of nature connection to help replenish your stoke. I'm your host, Jeff Johnson, and I hope you enjoy the ride. There's a question I use at times as a way of checking in on my relationship with nature. The question is this, what's governing how I spend my time? Is it mostly the rhythms of nature or is it the various digital consumerist frameworks that are ever present in modern life? These days, more often than I care to admit, it's the digital driving my days. Let's be real here. The act of making a podcast is largely a digital endeavor, and I love it. But it's only by asking these types of questions that allows me to zoom out and see that I have options. I can make different choices that better connect me to the rhythms of the natural world. My guest today ponders these types of questions a lot, and quite deeply. Writer Michael Sakasis, or L.M. Sakasis, as he's known by his pen name, is the author of The Convivial Society, a popular newsletter on the intersection of technology and society. His work has been featured in The Atlantic, Vox, The New York Times, and he's been a guest on The Ezra Klein Show. Much like Ezra, I truly enjoy reading Michael's newsletters because they have depth. They examine topics from multiple angles with nuance. They weave in history and bits of philosophy, and he poses smart questions. As a result, his essays stand out from today's fast cut, clickbait, shallow media landscape with refreshing poise. In this chat, we use an essay of his titled Whose Time, Which Temporality as a doorway to examine the value of moving through life's transitions in tune with the pace of nature. Say for example, the pace of a sunset at the end of a day. In other words, gradual, slow and sauntering with reverence and reflection for what came before, what may lie ahead and what is present now. In the first part of our conversation, we start with something insightful Michael discovered on an evening walk with his daughters. And then we do our best to make sense of why our current societal norms tend to gravitate toward digital time instead of nature time even though it defies our own biology. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today.
0: It is my pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation.
1: I first just want to start out with just some real thanks and gratitude. I've been reading your pieces and essays for a while now, originally turned on by Ezra Klein, I think. And I feel like we've lost the ability, (laughs) culture lately, to read longer form pieces, but to me they're like a salve in these very tweety times. So I just want to say thanks for that. I really appreciate the the depth and clarity of your thinking and contemplation. So yeah, thank you.
0: I appreciate that. That is good to hear and encouraging to hear. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. So you wrote a piece that really grabbed my attention called Whose Time, Which Temporality? And it's really about the importance of I'm using my words here, but natural circadian transitions. Or nature's transitions and how modern digital consumerist time works at odds with them and therefore against us as humans. And the piece was prompted by an evening walk at sunset in nature with you and your daughters. And you noticed a change in your physiology. First of all, what did you notice? And kind of at a high level, can you describe what noticing that change told you about time, transitions, and temporality, as you put it?
0: Yeah. So I live in a relatively suburban area is a kind of a small city in North Florida. The part of town I live in affords me the ability to walk on some small trails, short trails that feel relatively wooded, even though it's still populated. And I can see houses a little bit at a distance and whatnot. But So I'm walking right as the sun is setting, so it's dusk. And I think the first thing I noticed was that all of a sudden my shoulders relaxed. And so what I noticed, in fact, was the stress, I suppose, that I was carrying up to that point, which I had not noticed until all of a sudden I felt relaxed. And I just recognized that we had subtly shifted, that the quality of light had subtly shifted. And I'd say even the quality of the sounds around me, the, the acoustic environment had shifted as well and kind of dampened a little bit. And I began to reflect on how this would have been sort of an ordinary part of most humans day throughout most of human history, right? You would have gradually entered into the time of, of night and rest, transitioning out of the time of day and work. And then I I began to think about how different that is for most of us now, right? On a more ordinary day, I think I wrote in that piece that I, I now try to do that as a regular practice, right? To to some, to be outside at some point during that transition, if at all possible. But on ordinary days, we go from one brightly lit room to another. Electric light is everywhere, ubiquitous for us. Again, if we're in an urban or suburban setting. Late at night, we lay in our beds, finally ready to sleep, Once maybe once we've stopped doom scrolling for the night. And then we turn off a switch and we go from the flood of electric light to darkness. And expect our bodies to immediately transition into deep and restful and renewing sleep. And at that point, I, I don't know how much I had read about how sleep has become a problem. Many writers and studies and researchers highlighting the ill effects of a lack of sleep, the inability to sleep well, to rest well, the consequences this has for our bodies, etc. But it seemed, you know, rather just obvious experientially that this way of structuring our day was out of step with the kinds of creatures that we are, the kinds of bodies that we have, the kind of ways in which humans have been in sync with the diurnal rhythms of the day throughout our whole history. And so that moment basically gave me, it was a positive moment in the sense that I felt that that relief, that sense of easing into another phase of the day down to my muscles and my mind. But then by contrast with what I ordinarily would have done, I think it revealed to me how how what we tend to do is the very opposite of that and how unhelpful that is probably for all of us in terms of our mental health, our our physical health, et cetera.
1: Yeah, that's very clearly and sort of just laid out your thesis of the piece with those words. My thesis is, I think, but you said something, I won't get it exactly right, but the gist of it was that our digital culture exhibits no discernible temporal rhythm and therefore it's driving (laughs) a lot of problems that we have. And glad you brought up sleep, thinking through the lens of, say, Matt Walker and his book, Why We Sleep, or Sachin Panda's work at the Salk Institute. I mean, one only needs to look through the lens of sleep science and circadian biology to say, wow, the digital rhythms that we seem to be moving by rather than natural rhythms are completely the opposite of really what we need for our well-being.
0: Yeah. And I think the the digital layer, we tend to think about technology as being relatively new devices and gadgets or whatever. Right. Yeah. There's a quip, I think, maybe it's Kevin Kelly, I'm not sure, but technology is anything that was made after you were born or something like that. (laughs) Um, And so we forget about other things that are certainly part of our technological environment that are shaping us. And I say all that just to say that electric lighting was a big deal, right? We take it for granted now, but it enters into the human story relatively recently, going back maybe 125 years to when we get these big electrification projects that really don't are not completed in the United States until the mid late 20th century and so even before we get to the era of digital technology the era of electric technology right electric lighting already I think markedly changed the lived human environment in ways that we're maybe only now being you know beginning to understand or grapple with
1: yeah and so sort of begs the question why (laughs) Tell me if I get this right. I don't know if I was reading too much in or if I was getting it in the piece. One of the ways you reflected on the why behind this was that on some deep level, we maybe fear the lack of control (laughs) over nature. So it's a way for us to grapple with that awe-induced fear (laughs) of nature's time.
0: The why is interesting. You know, historically, we deploy technology to gain some measure of control over our environment. And, and a lot of it is understandable. If people are dropping by the thousands from the plague or if unclean drinking water is having extraordinarily bad health consequences, you know, there are all sorts of ways in which pre-modern, pre-industrial age, if you like, we were in a precarious situation in relation to nature understood broadly, right? And so one can understand you know, the desire to bring some measure of control or management over that condition to improve the human condition. Yeah. So I don't know that there was the the why was just taken for granted, of of course, because we're gonna make some things better. Now there are other places where maybe that particular logic doesn't play out quite so clearly. But when we bring light into the human life world, uh, there are lots of motives that might drive it. Some of it may be a desire for safety, right, to be able to push back the realms of the unknown, or the dangerous, maybe what is perceived as dangerous, although I'm not entirely sure that. I wonder the degree to which darkness gets perceived as dangerous after or threatening after electric light comes into the picture. Right? Are we more afraid of the darkness now? Right? I think. That's, I would guess
1: yes. Yeah. yeah yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: Exactly. And and there are other economic dimensions. It opens up commerce, more time for commerce, which I think, in certainly in Western European and and American context, is often a driving factor for. It's the leading answer for why is, well, it creates better conditions for commerce. And so that's certainly another aspect to it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people were just amazed by it. There's a wonderful book by the historian David Nye called uh, American Technological Sublime. And in it, he explores this reaction that... He focuses on, on American culture specifically, but that Americans have had two technological inventions of a certain scale or scope or power. And electric lighting, electrification is one of these. And so the electrified cityscape, when it first begins to appear in the American experience, was a thing of wonder, right? It was something that was dazzling. There are a lot of late 19th and early 20th century world fairs where the electrification was one of the leading technologies on display to kind of wow the the visitors and so it's hard for us to put ourselves in that frame of mind where we experience it with a measure of awe and wonder something that we you know just take for granted but i think there there's that dimension as well
1: absolutely so you, you have this phrase that i loved in the piece which is The temporal architecture of consumerist productivity, and when I think of what blocks us from nature and natural rhythms, a lot of times the first thing that comes to mind is physical things, physical structures, buildings, cities, the built environment, and because they literally physically block light and, to your point, the acoustic sounds of nature and things like that. But this idea of the temporal architecture of consumerist productivity, or maybe said more short, is digital time, (laughs) is that's a mental construct, not a physical building that is blocking us from engaging these more natural rhythms and natural transitions. Does that ring true for you? Yeah, yeah, I I think it's a little of both, right? It is
0: it's stained materially, right? So Timekeeping enables it digital technology to the degree that, for example, there are two sides of that consumer's productivity, right so there's the, the consumerist side. I can be shopping at 2 am. I have the whole world in my pocket, right And so there is no sort of hard and fast limit.'m I'm, I'm getting to that age where I find myself saying I'm old enough to remember x, y or Z, right So <laughs> you know I, I'm old enough to remember. For instance, when many stores were closed on Sundays or their hours were shortened, right? And so there were certain limits of geography and availability that were placed on our ability to consume. The digital marketplace abolishes all of those, right? So we are perpetual consumers. We're able to be perpetual consumers, right? But then also the productivity that's demanded of us. You know, it's sometimes... Presented as flexibility, right? That you have these digital tools that allow you to work from home. And I think for some people, it probably is experienced as flexibility. And, and I wouldn't want to downplay that. But it also means that there are no barriers or boundaries to when we are able to work, right? Able to be productive. And so there are many ways in which what digital technology has done is to remove these barriers that placed consumption and productivity in their proper spheres, whether you want to think of it as proper or not, but in, in certain spheres and freed up other time for other uses. Those have all blurred in such a way that we are, we've internalized, so that's the mental part. So that the materials you know, infrastructure that makes it possible is one thing, but the degree to which we then interiorize the ideal of understand ourselves primarily as consumers, right? As people whose function or whose desires are met through the purchasing of, of goods and services. And as people who are productive, capital P, right? That there's this idea of productivity, optimization. I more recently have been talking about the, you know, the imperative to simply optimize everything. And digital tools give us incredible powers to measure, to monitor, to enhance, to calibrate ourselves, our bodies, our time. All of this puts us in that frame of mind of never really just being, but always doing or considering what needs to be done for ourselves, for others, for work. It is an internalized rhythm. Maybe it's not even a rhythm. I think that's part of the problem. It's it's, it's an internalized way of being in the world that is unable to perceive, much less sink into these alternative rhythms of day and night, of the seasons rhythms that are not calibrated by the demands of our technology or our economy.
1: Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. They're really in inhuman rhythms <laughs> too, but I, one thing I want to point out the Michael is in that I appreciate about your writing is you look through multiple lenses and you're not just condemning <laughs> this. It seems to me that underpinning of a lot of your work is actually to just get us to ask better questions and think and contemplate these things through a couple of different lenses. I hope so. so.
0: I'm, uh, yeah, yeah. I hope that comes across that way. It would be disingenuous of me to suggest that I don't have some sense of, of what a better, more humane way of going about our lives might be. But I think the the trick is that I, I'm certainly not immune to these things, right? Yeah. So we're talking uh, on
1: Zoom right now. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are. Um, Blood on our hands. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. yeah. So I feel the pressures myself. I realize where certain ways I fall short. And and then also there's the question of the degree to which the individual has agency or doesn't have agency. So I think helping my readers or in this case, listeners or whatever the case may be, better think about these dynamics, right? To think better about these dynamics, hopefully gives us a little bit more agency in better arranging, ordering our lives, our habits, our practices, so that they might be better in keeping with what are probably our our express preferences, right, for what we want our lives to look like, if we had the time to stop and think, right, or if we were able to
1: implement that vision more fully in our own experience. Hey, everyone, just a quick note to let you know about the Nature Junkie newsletter. It's a free short email where I share some wisdom, wonder, and ways of nature connection to help replenish your stoke a couple times per month. To sign up, just head over to naturejunkielife.com or click the link in the show notes underneath the episode. Okay, back into our conversation. And back to the productivity side of things, seems to me we're, because we've in some ways become uh, just tied at the hip to the consumerist time (laughs) and digital patterns. It seems on the surface we're we're cramming, packing more into life, but I think the reverse is also true, that we're actually crowding life and just being out of the picture <laughs> by doing that and trying to act like robots here.
0: Yeah, that's well put. I'll recommend another short book to your listeners. It's The Uncontrollability of the World by Hartmut Rosa, who's a a contemporary German sociologist. And it's a a short little book, 100 pages, and it's quite good. But in there, he talks a little bit about this modern quest to, to, as you put it, kind of cram in as much as possible to fill our lives. He, He links this to essentially the secularization of Western culture, right? If in fact, this is our only shot at at a meaningful life, right? If we're bounded by the parameters of mortality, then of course, you, you've got to get it all in. Now, you know, whether You know, I think that seems relatively compelling to me as an explanation for this dynamic. But the other element I think maybe I would add to it is that the lure of possibility, right? We have a hard time foreclosing possibilities. Maybe there are a number of reasons for that as well. But what that leads to, right, is this desire to the way we might put it is to live the most fulfilling life or and with the emphasis perhaps on the filling to experience as much as possible. And so one can understand where, where that desire arises from and, and how it's encouraged and maybe fed by marketing, again, by the consumer's mindset. But that breadth of experience may be at odds with the possibility of, of a certain depth of experience that might be ultimately more satisfying in that frame of mind where you want to experience as much as possible. I'm not sure at what point you would ever feel content right? Or at what point you would ever feel like this is enough. It's just, it becomes a kind of self-perpetuating, endless quest. And the mode of experience, right? The mode in which you experience these things as something to check off a list. I'm not sure how much people kind of think of in terms of bucket lists anymore, right? But there was a period, I feel like about a decade ago, where everybody was talking about bucket lists. And I do wonder whether that doesn't defeat the desire to have a meaningful, substantive, satisfying encounter or experience or whatever the case may be, right? So we internalize, again, these these mindsets that position us in our own lives, you know, as spectators, as people who are just checking things off a list rather than taking in deeply experiencing even, you know, whatever. however wonderful these particular things we want to get done or experience might be.
1: Yeah, the whole just being, I, I think what we're missing by cramming the checklist in and and behaving that way with time is the letting some of the mystery unravel. <laughs> I think about Richard Louv's book, Last Child in the Woods. And you know, a big part of what he's hitting at in that 10 or 12 year old book, but still very relevant, in fact, probably even more relevant today, is that kids today, I would are you adults too, have less just sort of open, unstructured time that can unravel where your imagination can play and Things happen that are not planned or structured in a way. I think we miss a lot of that by being on autopilot checklist.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that desire to, to optimize, to make the most efficient use of our time. Performance to, and optimization. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right. Quantifiable metrics that will make sure you're, you have some output to show for it, right? All of that, I think, leaves no room for what you're describing, right? simply being taking in instead of always acting receiving instead of always seeking to do right and then to allow for that space for the mind to wander the imagination to wander it is i think even the just the the pace at what pace do we need to be operating at in order to even perceive nature right and both I, i mean that both in terms of our physical movements you know if you're driving down a highway, right, that speed precludes any kind of close attention to nature. The speed of walking is a, a wholly different thing, but also the internalized rhythm, right, that force that I sometimes feel even inside of myself that propels me forward to nothing in particular, but just forward to the next thing. And both that that inner drive, I think, needs to be stilled. And then also our, our, our literal pace, which we move through the world, needs to be slowed. In order to rightly perceive i think right to attend to the world in a way that would be that would allow the world to disclose its beauty and its resources to us
1: yeah there's actually some really good evidence on this out of the uk from uh, miles richardson he has a book out right now called reconnection and what he discovered in his research is that he found that noticing nature was more effective for increasing nature connectedness which then by association Improves pro-social and pro-environmental behavior as well. So it wasn't. It's kind of if you're just getting outside and still on autopilot, it doesn't quite sink in or hit the way it does when you notice and it, you know, as you're saying, slow down <laughs> to receive it. That's what ties ties in for me there, based on what you said. I would love to segue back a little bit to transitions and sort of bring it back to that theme of the piece. I'm going to come in a sort of sideways door. My day job is brand strategy in the natural products arena. So I read various marketing articles at some points begrudgingly, but I was reading one the other day and it was how all 85% of marketers think that short form video now, which, you know, is defined as let's say 15 seconds to a minute and a half, somewhere in there is has the greatest return on investment. That's what everyone needs to do now. And I'm just going to read you a couple of these. They're pro tips here. I mean, you just even look at the language of it and it's because they're easy to watch and share, cheap and easy to produce. Here are some rapid fire best practices. Get to the point quickly. Use quick cuts to keep your videos engaging. I just think we have a real avoidance for anything difficult to understand i mean we're talking about slowing down to notice nature but just slowing down to hear people's words understand them digest them think about them a little bit what do you make of that as it relates to social media yeah no i i think part of what it is,
0: is it's that this trains us in a way whether we recognize it or not we are trained by this right this this way of consuming information, if you like, or consuming video or, or whatever it is that, it, that you know, we're, we're consuming this, this, the rate of cuts, the length of, of video, it, it makes it so that we have a much harder time deploying our attention at length, right? And so I think that my reaction is that this is, you know, really sad, right, at one level and unfortunate. I don't know, I'm not sure what is going through the minds and hearts of people who write like this or promote this, right? They're just doing their jobs at one level. And, yeah. But whatever the case may be, I think that the net effect is that you create a media environment that stacks the deck against us if we are seeking to be attentive to the world, uh, attentive to nature. Because our habits are formed in such a way that we need to retrain our perception, retrain our attentive capacities, learn to notice. These are things that we now need to do in a way that maybe the pre-digital era or the you know, perhaps maybe the pre-television era may not have been something that we needed to work against, right? So so I, I suppose the structure of this media environment makes it so that we have to work against the grain of our social media world. I mean that in terms of the, you know, our social world and our media environment in order to become the kind of attentive subjects that we we would want to be, right? If I just reflect on my own experience, I have this sort of job where I am also in front of a screen a good bit of the day. And I recognize this if I go out on a walk, and I already I do have a desire to attend to, to notice I am having to work against kind of these inner rhythms and patterns that I've internalized and create a new set of habits a new set of internal rhythms in order to appropriately tend to the world. So you're, you're always you're fighting a a battle in essence, right? So that's what I mean by, by the deck being stacked against us, have To work against the grain of our material environment.
1: Yeah. I think it takes a proactive, diligent behavior and different direction to not get consumed by it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. I really enjoy how Michael looks at the relationship between technology and society. Of course, we both have a bias toward nature time, but I still appreciate Michael's really fair and nuanced assessment of the challenging issue of how we use technology. The main lesson I took away from that first part of our discussion was just how important it is to cultivate a practice of knowing when digital time is running us, noticing how it makes us feel and the importance of taking a proactive approach to moving more in tune with nature. In the next part of our conversation, we explore the restorative power of natural transitions, potential benefits to our well-being, and how they can draw us together. So you, in the piece you also quote, and you do this, a lot of your writing, you pull from a lot of great philosopher history sources, and uh, you you pull from one Czech philosopher, I, I may butcher the name here, but Erezim Kohak.
0: Yeah, I think so. Right. I'm always afraid I'm butchering the name, but I think that's <laughs> how I would say
1: it too. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. You quoted a little bit. I'm gonna read just a, a piece I thought was beautiful, and it's from his book, The Ember and the Stars. And it says, the night comes softly, seeping into the clearing and penetrating the soul, all healing, all reconciling, renewing the world for a new day. I wanna just talk for a moment about the value of transitions or their restorative power. <laughs> And what we're missing by not leaving room for these transitions, kind of back to some of the sleep stuff we we're talking about and the the negative implications there of artificial light after dark and all these things. But I thought that was a, a beautiful way to mark that because these circadian transitions are a cue for us, I think, as humans to shift our behavior in a way that's either readying for a day, readying for something new or restoring and and replenishing for the next day. But please say anything else you'd like about that, that quote and that passage.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that, it's a wonderful book. And the background there is that he was born in Czechoslovakia in the middle 20th century. He passed away actually maybe 10 years ago. Or maybe less than that, actually. But he was teaching in the United States, Boston University, if I remember correctly. I might, I might not have that right, but he's in New England. And he was living on a, on a plot of land. Uh, he describes it in the book at the end of the paved road, right? In a sense, it's a sli- slightly more self aware, Waldenesque project. Anyway, <laughs> and he describes, he has these long vignettes where he basically is just observing and describing for the reader as best as possible the environment, his transitions. This transition from day to dusk to night, he he talks about how dusk is the time of philosophy. And so, you know, if you're philosophically inclined, you can read a little bit more about what he means by that. But I noticed this in that walk and then subsequently how gradually, right, the night comes upon us, right, how gradually light fades and how the gradual nature of that transition prepares us, eases us into signals to us, right? That we can adjust our behavior, our thinking, we slow down. If if we're attentive to it, I I would say our body itself begins to slow down, right? And I think as I reflected on that, the flipping of the switch is the point of contrast in a sense, right? Full light, full dark in the room on the, at the flip of a the switch. There, there is no transition. And so the point is not the light switch. I think the, the point is most of our day, most of our lives, we've lost this sense of valuing the transition, the gradual transition. We jump from one thing to the next, even at, the very, at a very micro level, I would say, right? So if I even am attentive to... What I am doing when I'm in the middle of going through email in my inbox, right? Well, the word for it right, is multitasking, or, or at least this is the way that you know, it tends to be framed in a more pejorative sense. I'm not doing anything well because I'm doing too many things at the same time. right? All, there is no transition from one kind of work and frame of mind to another work and frame of mind, another task. Everything tends to blur together. I highlighted the use of the word stochastic. So it basically means something that is happening without any particular rhythm or pattern, right? I kept hearing it used in different contexts. And I thought that's interesting that this word now is popping up in, in various contexts. Um, but I, I thought maybe that that's, tells us something interesting because I think so much of our lives are stochastic in the sense that there's very little that that is predictable. There are very few patterns that are steady and allow us to kind of anticipate and gradually transition from from one thing to another, whether it's from one task to another, one state of mind to another, one bodily state, or whether they're larger things like, you know, tr- even our, our transitions in terms of our, our own life stories. You know, I'd want to maybe think a little bit more about how, our, how, how best to articulate that. But my, my sense is that we've we no longer value the, the transition, we simply go from one thing to another in such a way that perhaps we're not prepared to receive what is coming and are likewise not adequately parting with whatever we're leaving behind, right? So it's almost as if we're leaving things unfinished and find ourselves unprepared to start what may be next. And I think that, that little pattern plays out in a lot of different ways in modern society.
1: Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Where my brain was going was, made me think about death actually and grief and how, particularly in Western culture, how we're not great with that. And this way in which we engage with media and in not having the transitions is a reflection of that. Yeah. And so many minute levels.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's such a good example, Jeff, and and obviously a very delicate one. But I, I don't think, maybe going back to the early modern age or even prior to that, you know, there was a tradition which would have been called something like the, you know, the, the art of dying, right? That, that there was a way of thinking about death, not simply as this thing that you avoided and tried to block out of your experience. I mean, for one thing, you know, you couldn't have blocked it out of your experience, you know, if you had tried at that point. But it's very easy for us today to do that, right? To sequester death and dying into very specific spaces and to avoid any thinking about it. So, you know, in a sense, when it comes, we might say we're not prepared for it, right? You know, obviously death can visit one in ways that it would be impossible to prepare for, right? I want to acknowledge all of that. But there comes a time in our lives when we begin to consider what, what might be the art of dying well, right? What does that even look like? Right? Or even to think in those terms, right? So I think that is a poignant example, one that I, you know, I certainly didn't adequately treat there, but but certainly fits into that sense of not preparing, but rather just being abruptly presented with a new re- or abruptly switching into a new reality. And you know, I'm, I'm not yeah. sure what the best best language is there. Yeah,
1: yeah, because I was it helped me shift. Actually, what you're saying it helped me shift from thinking about transitions to what comes next in a softer, slower, sauntering way. <laughs> But what you're helping me do is look back and have a little bit of reverence and reflection for whatever I just came through, whatever we just came through, whether that was an an email, a meeting, or an interaction with a friend or family member or something, or just the day or seasons or whatever. I mean, it's micro and it's very macro.
0: Yeah, right, right. And and I think that in other cultures, you would have had uh, ceremonies, rites, and rituals to mark these transitions, right? Whether it's a transition from childhood into adulthood, or just smaller transitions in work and play. I, you know, I think we're we're sort of averse to rigid forms, and you know, I think Western cultures have had a preference for um, spontaneity and, a, and an aversion to to ritual for some time. But I think those little rites and rituals and ceremonies. Maybe helped us with that. With it was a way of reverencing the transition, right? Of of acknowledging it, so that you are paying appropriate respect both to what is being left behind and welcoming and preparing for what might come on the other side of that transition.
1: Beautifully said. (laughs) To try to open up some hope in here. I don't know about you, but I see some signals for hope and optimism here. Maybe maybe they're at the edges, but hopefully they'll they'll start to at least compete with the consumerist <laughs> use of time. One I see is you know, people starting to push back on hustle culture a little bit and grinding away at everything right. You know, another one clearly in the the workforce in big workforces, I don't need to mention any company names, but big ones where workers are starting to push back <laughs> to for, for more humane working conditions. I think another that that gives me some hope here is, some of the evidence coming out around four day work weeks. Do you have any other signals you see that give you a little bit of hope here on this? Or
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think a general, this is very anecdotal, but a sense that people are recognizing that something is broken at a very fundamental level in the way in which we have been encouraged to live our lives. right? And so what I mean by that is not Is that there's a recognition that what we require may not simply be a little tweak here and a little adjustment there, but rather a more complete rethinking of why it is that we do what we do, right? Why am I ordering my life in this way? Why am I pursuing this goal? And I think that has a lot to do with this particular moment we find ourselves in where Long standing institutions are losing their credibility and their cultural influence. Uh, we're kind of casting about for something new. And there's something a little chaotic about being in a moment like that. I think from another perspective, you know, is there can be something hopeful about a moment like that because it, it creates maybe a space to to rethink our priorities, our goals, our uh, what we value, what is good. In new ways, and so I do think I, I don't know how widespread that is, right? I, I don't know if this is just an effect of you know my particular channels that are open to me, the particular communities I run in, or you know whatever the case may be I'm sure there's something to that, but it does seem like there's there is a wider sense that things are are again, like I said, not right and not good for us at a more fundamental level, which then hopefully prepares the ground for for more serious rethinking of how we've been living our lives.
1: Yeah. Made me think of another, because I'm in the health and wellness world. There's a kind of an insights research group up in Seattle called the Hartman group. And and they they have a big segmentation that tracks health and wellness attitudes, behaviors. They do a great job. And I noticed this before COVID, but when, when you sort of weigh the drivers or why people get into health and wellness behaviors, it used to be physical was way more than mental or emotional, but even just prior to the pandemic, mental and emotional eclipsed physical. So I think, and that's, you know, that segmentation covers all households in the US, but there's about a third of the population, third of households that that really rings true with. So maybe there's another signal in there. Yeah,
0: yeah, right.
1: I often think about how for thousands of years between the moon, the stars and fire, that's as bright as it would have ever gotten at night. And you close your peace Pondering the romantic notion of a candle and how it can work with the light rather than fight against it. Yeah. But, but you weren't just talking about the health benefits of avoiding blue light. For example, you were talking about a different way of experiencing time altogether. Can you share a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah. I I think for the record, I'm I'm not lighting candles every night in my room uh <laughs> or in my house. But me neither. Yeah, right. There there was a I think there was a passage in Ray Bradbury's. Fahrenheit 451 that I cite there and, I, and I, I, I Bradbury is very interesting I think that book it's part of the school curriculum and so it kind of sits in that corner of our mind as you know just this thing that got assigned in school or, and where we may loosely associate it with book burnings and and I think that really kind of reduces what that book ends up being about and I think it is about in some sense how we stay human in a rapidly changing technological milieu that makes us operate at a certain pace and seals us off from a more direct encounter with the world. I mean, so much of what happens in that book is, is people were finding novel ways of enclosing themselves in media environments. So at, at any rate, it was in that book that, there, that one of the characters recalls a time when he sat with his mother by candlelight. And I think he makes the observation there that, that the, the candlelight gathers you right it it brings you together and if you just sort of picture being in a dark room with a lit candle that candle doesn't illuminate the whole room right it creates the sphere within the darkness and if you want to partake of that light, you you come into that room, right? So if you're with another person, and you know maybe this is the the, the reason we associate uh, candlelit dinners, right, with, with a certain kind of romance, right, because it gathers you in in a very intimate way. Electric lighting disperses us, right? It it, it it indiscriminately illuminates, and thus makes it possible for us to be in any corner of the room, right? It doesn't have that same gathering effect, and it, and it doesn't have that same sense where with the with the candlelight again that even physically not just in terms of chronology or time temporality but you have the more intense light at the center fading gradually away into the darkness right it gives you that smooth transition from one state to the other it is in some respects you know also kind of healthier for you in the sense that it prepares you it doesn't have the same effect that electric lighting has right on your phys- on your physiology but i think it was more of, of evoking that sense that even something as simple as how we choose to illuminate the darkness has what I would call a kind of moral dimension to it. I don't know if moral maybe is the best word for it, but something, I suppose what I'm reaching for is that there is something happening. There's a difference, there's a sort of a difference that it isn't just about health, right? It's not just about some quantifiable measure, but that there's some different texture of life that emerges when you have these alternate ways of, in this case, lighting a room, right? And it has effects on how we relate, how human beings relate to one another in that context. And then I think maybe it's Ezraim Kohak who kind of elaborates on this point as well, that it has the effect maybe even of putting us in a certain frame of mind, right? It can slow us down in that way where we're prepared to think differently. It generates I've been talking, you know, I've mentioned a couple of times that ah, that sense that we may have, where even when we have a moment to rest, we find it difficult to be still enough to rest. Right? We we actually kind of find our kind of inner force propelling us on to something, anything, to fidget more likely than not to reach for our smartphone. But that maybe the material shape of our environment can have a differently structured, can have a different effect a calming effect, a way of slowing us down a way of creating these more deliberate transitions. So I think a lot of that was wrapped into that, that particular example, which again, I don't necessarily think is normative for everybody, right? Or something that we must always do, but but that it does give us a glimpse of a different way of maybe being and and who knows, maybe it might be a good practice too, too, occasionally.
1: Yeah, well, I'm going to take that as a you to do that a little bit more often yeah, it does it yeah. creates a vibe you know it does yeah yeah put in my words <laughs> yeah yeah i was gonna <laughs> say sure wait, for words but
0: that, that's a much shorter way of putting it maybe more effective too <laughs>
1: i love it it's beautiful i mean i love the aspect of intimacy the slowing down yeah and the focusing attention in a different way yeah it's beautiful yeah, yeah it reminds me we lived in australia for a little while when our kids were little and sometimes some, some of the most fun memories are they would get these crazy lightning storms off the coast, and we would just sit with the kids in the living room, turn off all the lights, and just watch the lightning go. <laughs>
0: yeah, that no, was and, amazing. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, it was. It, it just changed the whole vibe for the family. It was great. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you just a couple questions. That I love to ask every guest. Sure. One is, what is nature to you? How do you define nature?
0: I guess I'll approach that by. Thinking, I think of this question to some degree in relation to technology. So, write and think a you know a good bit about technology, and so I often start a talk with the question, "What is technology?" And that's you know kind of a tricky thing, actually, and it's hard to kind of come at a definition that works really well. But I, I sometimes just land on the human-built world. It's you know the 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 whole of our material culture, things that we have made in various ways, whether uh, it involved just taking readily available pieces of the natural world and putting them together to make a tool, or, or much more elaborate modern technologies. But I, I suppose that's you know the the answer to your question might then be the the, uh, the non-human built world, right? It's the world that is given that we are you know we enter in that that has not yet been at this point it's hard to even say that has not been worked on. By humanity, because it's extremely hard now to find any part of the non-human world that, that doesn't bear the imprint of humanity. And I don't even want to press that distinction too far, right? Because I think that has been part of the problem in the modern context where we have somehow imagined the human as something separate from the natural world, right? Rather than being woven into it, a part of it, dependent on it. So I have religious sensibilities in a kind of Christian theological tradition. And so part of that answer takes that into account as well, right? Where I'm perceiving not just inert matter, but a world that is alive and meaningful. And I know it's complicated. Some of your listeners would maybe be right in saying there have been ways in which elements of the Christian tradition have been used in a way to justify the exploitation of nature, uh, which I think is important to acknowledge. I think I would want to argue that those have been misused, right? And that they more properly understood. There is a an acknowledgement of kind of a reverence that we owe to the non-human world. It to some degree speaks of of the creator from this frame of mind, right? So it's it's an important way of kind of reckoning with our status as creatures. So there's a kind of humbling effect, an awe and a wonder that comes with it, a beauty as well, a kind of wildness that shouldn't be underplayed either. So it's a lot, right? I mean, it's it's hard to encompass it, I think, in words. But I think part of what I find myself stressing now is that it is not something distinct from me, but something that I depend upon, that there's a web of interdependence here as well. I tend to point out that in the Hebrew Bible, right in the opening chapters of Genesis, there's this, the use of the, the Hebrew word Adam, which suggests both ground and humanity in the abstract, and then also the personal name, uh, Adam. And I think that sort of tells us something important about that interdependence between the human, the ground from which we are taken and our own personal identity. So I don't know, it's a kind of a long-winded answer to that question, but
1: that's great. Now, thank you for sharing your perspective on that. It's definitely a tricky one. I wrote a blog once that showed the if you look up in the dictionary the definitions from nature, there's about twelve of them. I, I think anytime there's twelve definitions for something, yeah, right, right, we're, we're not quite clear on it. But there's lots of different ways to look at it, and that's why I asked the question. So, thank you, thank you for yours. Yeah. Lastly, what are the ways that you love to connect with nature regularly?
0: Yeah, I, right now I find myself walking a lot in, again, in contexts that are not necessarily completely devoid of human civilization, but where I can find simply more trees, more foliage, more animal life. There's a little one particular path I, I noted, I think, in one of um, my posts recently that I, it's a short path. I try to walk it as attentively as I can, right? And to notice the variety of plant life, variety of animal life, and how those are shifting and changing over the course of the year through winter, spring, and now entering summer. And so I think I just trying to specifically pay attention to the birds in my area, which one could pay attention to any a number of things, right? But that's just happens to be one of the things I'm focusing on as a practice. And trying to name these things as well, which I think is as an important element to it, right to to know the name right so that it, things are not just generically trees or generically birds or generically bugs, right, but to kind of learn the names of things, I think that deepens our our connection with it and and i i I want to reiterate a point you made earlier, right I think in citing maybe the book reconnection, I don't know how we would come to care for what we do not know, right, and so I think it's essential that we do reconnect, right that we we learn to see to name and to value the natural world, or else there's hardly any chance that we would be at all inclined to protect it or to serve it, yeah,
1: sounds like a great call to action for people,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: learn the names Uh, where would you love to point people to connect
0: with your work Uh, so the best way of doing that is probably through my newsletter the convivial society it's on substack it was an outgrowth of a blog that i uh, wrote for about 10 years beginning around 2010 but yeah now that's where i'm writing primarily and i'll have a a book coming out uh, maybe in a year i'm still working on on it it's um exciting yeah 41 questions technology and the moral life and it'll be with avid reader press.
1: So is that does that emanate from the article you wrote on 41 questions of our technology?
0: Yes, and ah. in that and in, in that interview with Ezra. Yeah. Ah,
1: that's great. So I I'm gonna plug that for listeners and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Can you say the name of the piece that was originally titled?
0: I, I think I titled that the questions concerning technology.
1: Okay. Yeah. But there is a list of forty-one questions to to ask of our technology, whether it's a a steel hammer or a smartphone, right? Everything in between. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Or or artificial intelligence, or whatever. Whatever. I really uh, highly recommend that, and I think it. I'm excited you're writing book emanating from that because I think we need more people asking these sorts of questions. So thanks for that, and look forward to it. Yeah. Thank you. Michael, uh, what a pleasure and so honored that you, uh, could join us as a guest today and hopefully we can have more conversations in the future and, uh, yeah, just thank you. Thanks for being here. It was great, Jeff. Yeah. Thank you for the conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Michael and I hope it gave you a few things to contemplate with fresh eyes moving forward. I know it did for me. At the same time, I want to be clear that this conversation is not meant to be some anti-tech rant, though I could do that. I actually love technology. I use it every day, just like you. However, there is a nature junkie principle that I do hope to impart that was embedded in this conversation. What I've observed from various inspiring nature junkies is that they are keenly aware that our use of technology is a relationship. And just like any other relationship, it can be healthy or unhealthy. They know it takes proactive diligence to keep this relationship on the healthy side of the ledger. They foster an acute awareness of knowing when too much tech is dominating them and when they need to get outside and reconnect with nature. They ask questions of their technology, and I suppose that's what I'm inviting you to do, and so is Michael. As he mentioned, he's working on a forthcoming book called 41 Questions, Technology and the Moral Life, and I hope to have him back on Nature Junkie Radio for more when the book drops. Until next time, enjoy the ride. As always, thanks for tuning in to Nature Junkie Radio. I invite you to head over to our website at naturejunkielife.com for show notes, to learn more about nature connection, and to sign up for our newsletter. And one last thing, please share how you microdose nature so I can share it with everyone in a future episode of the podcast. It's simple. Just get out your phone, record a voice memo for about 30 seconds to a minute. Tell me your first name, where you're from, describe how you microdose nature, and importantly, how does it make you feel? Just email that voice memo to hello at naturejunkielife.com. That's hello at naturejunkielife.com, and that's all it takes. Thanks so much in advance, and as always, thanks for listening to Nature Junkie Radio. Microdose Nature and Replenish Your Stoke.